Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. This short passage of Scripture has two different topics in it. The first is speaking evil of a brother, and the second is boasting about tomorrow. They are not exactly related, but they're together. James is kind of going through a series of exhortations, some of which are related, some of which are not. Our context is this, in the first part of chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, James has given a very severe warning against worldliness and being friends of the world and adult, spiritual adulteresses and so forth. So we start now in James 4, verse 11. Don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Well, the first question we need to ask here is what law is James talking about that we're not supposed to judge? Well, there's two basic options, the law of Christ and the law of Moses. Now, what makes this difficult is James is writing to New Testament believers, which tends to make you think law of Christ, but on the other hand, he's so Jewish and he refers back to the Old Testament so much, that makes you think about the law of Moses. Well, let's look at this. Here's those who favor the interpretation that James is speaking of the law of Christ. But if you judge the law of Christ, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. The NIV, NIV Study Bible says that the law that James is referring to is the quote-unquote law of love. Well, what is the law of love? I would think that's the law of Christ. The context of the letter suggests that James was, was referring to the law of Christ, James 2.8. Indeed, if you keep the royal law, the law of the king, prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as, as yourself, you are doing well. Well, the royal law, the law of the king, that sounds like the law of Christ, although that's controversial. Jameson Fawcett and Brown, quoting the old commentator Alford, says this, quote, Alford rightly takes the law to be the old moral law applied in its comprehensive spiritual fulfillment by Christ, the law of liberty. James, in fact, in another place in Scripture, in, in his book, calls the law the law of liberty. But the royal law, the law of liberty, that sounds like the law of Christ. Here's what John Gill says, quote, he says this law is, quote, this law is a, quote, new commandment of love, which is eminently called the law of Christ, and which is most apparently broke by detraction and speaking evil one of another. Well, that's a lot of heavy hitters saying that James is referring to the law of Christ. Now, if you say it's the law of Moses, you've got a problem with that, because we aren't under the law of Moses. Christians aren't under the law of Moses. Read the book of Galatians, read the book of Romans, read the book of Hebrews. Now, I know that Reformed Covenant theologians will say, yeah, but the moral law is not done away with. That's only the ceremonial and the judicial law that's done away with, to which I reply, you break one law, you break them all, because the law is an integrated, unified whole. We're not under the law of Moses. So we're going to assume here that James is talking about the law of Christ, the law is given to Jesus and his apostles, which, of course, incorporates a lot of the old Mosaic law, too. We need to remember that. So let's look at some of the Old Testament passages which talk about judging your brother. Psalm 15:3. dot, dot, dot. Who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. Psalms 50, verses 19 and 20. You unleash your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for deceit. Putting your tongue to work, getting ready to let your tongue work so you can destroy somebody. You sit maligning your brother, slandering your mother's son. Of course, that is a blood brother there, not a spiritual brother, but it's the same idea. 
don't do it. Sticks and stones can hurt my bones, but words can never hurt me. Never has there been such a lie been spoken in a proverb. Proverbs 6. I'm talking about in a secular proverb. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, or 16 and 19. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. A lying witness who gives false testimony and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. The tongue problem. The tongue problem. Leviticus 19.16, you must not, not go about spreading slander among your people. You must not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am Yahweh. Yeah, you say something bad about somebody, you can ruin their life. So, there's plenty of Old Testament precedent, and of course Jesus too. Judge not that you be not judged, for example. And that means judge, don't judge unrighteously and unfairly. So that's repeated in the New Testament too. Don't do that. Don't criticize one another. Now, this is not talking about just criticism. It's talking about unjust criticism. Just criticism is is called rebuking a brother, and we know that's in the Bible, do we not? Matthew eighteen fifteen. if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Well, in that case, you have to justly criticize your brother, and of course, if he doesn't listen to you, then you bring one or two other witnesses along, and that's the second stage of church discipline. But there is rebuke going on. You're not immune from rebuke just because James says don't criticize one another. He means don't unjustly criticize one another. Don't run people down in a fashion that's not based on the facts. And when James talks about not criticizing a brother, he's returning to an old theme, the theme of controlling the tongue, the theme of not being hung by your tongue. James 3, 6, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. So hell lights up your tongue, and then your tongue lights up your life's journey and burns you up as you walk through this veil of tears. Control the tongue. Now notice one last point here. James says if you judge the law... You judge the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And, of course, Jesus is supposed to be judging us. We're not supposed to be judging Jesus. So you judge a brother wrongly, you're judging Jesus. You're judging his law. Verse 12 of James chapter 4, There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. So you're judging the law, and you're not a judge, because there's only one lawgiver and judge. And that's probably referring to Jesus here. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, when James says there is one lawgiver and judge, and again, this is controversial. Some people say that's Jesus. Some people say it's God the Father. Here's a verse in Isaiah saying it refers to God the Father. Isaiah 33:22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Now, here's John Gill putting forth the proposition that this lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy is Jesus. Quote, Most critics think that the law mentioned here is the same as that which he elsewhere calls the royal law and the law of liberty, thereby meaning the gospel, and that Christ is the person who is called the lawgiver and judge. And I'm going to take Gill's view on that. But let me give you Clark's opposing view, who says that the one lawgiver and judge is God the Father. Clark says this, I believe James means the Jewish law, so he doesn't think that the judges, the law that's being talked about in these, in these several verses is the law of Christ, but it's rather the law of Moses. And I think he's wrong on that, but it's still, it's understandable. I believe James means the Jewish law, and by the lawgiver and judge, God Almighty, as acknowledged by the Jewish people. 
I find, or think I find, from the close examination from the closest examination of, of this epistle, but few references to Jesus Christ or his gospel. His Jewish creed, forms, and maxims this writer keeps constantly in view, and it is proper he should, considering the persons to whom he wrote. Some of them were doubtless Christians, some. Some of them certainly no Christians, really? And some of them half Christians and half Jews. I don't know what a half Christian and half Jew is. The two latter descriptions are those most frequently addressed. Well, now, the problem with Adam Clark's view here is that how many times does James address the people who are reading his letter as brothers? I don't have the verses in front of me right now, but in previous audios, I have mentioned it over and over again. He calls them brothers. So, And if they're brothers, brothers are going to be operating under the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. So I think that Gill is right here and Clark is wrong. Gill says this is talking about Jesus, who's the lawgiver and judge, and he is administering his law, the law of Christ. Now, there's one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and to destroy. That's Jesus. Now, this is not just a passive standing by and watching us destroy ourselves. It says he it will destroy. He's, he says in Matthew 10:28, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, Jesus there, I think, is probably referring to God the Father. It's the same idea. And again, this is a minor point, whether it's God the Father or, or Jesus the Son. It's the law of Christ that's being administered. God, or Jesus, is the judge who's in charge of the law of Christ. Now, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is James' way of saying judge, not that you be not judged, which Jesus famously said. Now, that verse is totally abused. It's, it's quoted over and over again to say, there's no right, there's no wrong, don't judge me. Planet Fitness, a judgment-free zone. People even advertising now. We don't. We can't make moral judgments. Oh, Adolf Hitler killed six million Jews. Well, that's just his culture. What's right for Adolf is right for Adolf. What's right for me is right for me. And let's don't be judgmental. You hear this excrement all the time from the loose-lipped solipsist who are now running our culture, the moral relativist who can't think of anything that's right or wrong. Oh, we mustn't have marriage between a man and a woman. No. If somebody can just identify as a member of the opposite sex, then he can marry. Or if he identifies as the same sex, he can get married. It doesn't matter. And people are out there making up their own laws as they go. And we can't judge that. Oh, yes, we can. And not only can we, we should. John 7:24. Jesus says this, Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Judge, a command. We are commanded to judge. Oh, but we're not supposed to judge our neighbor. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Well, how do you reconcile that? You're not supposed to judge your neighbor? But then John 7, 24 says, judge. Well, the answer is, is that when James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? He's talking about unjustly judging the neighbor, judging your neighbor, criticizing him on incidental details in which he might be wrong or on essential matters which are not based on fact. Accusing him wrongly, in other words. Twisting the facts. A good judge, what do judges do? The first thing is they, they have to decide what the facts are in the case. And so they take testimony. They don't make judgments about what the law is. They find out, well, what happened? Then once they find out the facts, then they apply the facts to the law. That's a good judge will do that. We have to have judgment, folks. This world is not a judgment-free zone. And it, it amuses me, these people who talk about, we don't want to judge people. We don't want to judge those abortions who've killed 56 million people since 1976 and the Roe v. Wade decision. Oh, we don't want to judge that. 
But by, by golly, they'll judge the announcer for the Sacramento Kings who had the horrible audacity to say that all lives matter. They judged him, crucified him by the cancel culture, the Twitter mob, and, and his employer fired him. So, yeah, you want to talk about not judging? Well, then how about practice? Practice what you preach. Twitter mob, snowflake millennials, practice what you preach. We go now to verses 13, 14, and 15 of James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Now here, James is, is leaving his former topic of speaking evil of a brother, and now he's going to go to the second topic of this section of scripture, which is don't boast about tomorrow. Let me start over. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like smoke that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you say, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That was customary in the ancient world for merchants to go and live in a different city for a year because travel was so slow. And there's, by the way, there's one thing about the ancient world that's always surprised me. You read ancient history and the historians talk about political movements and religious and philosophical beliefs of the culture and so forth. They don't talk about economics too much. But it occurred to me one time reading ancient history how much economic activity went on. These ancient kings, if they were going to fight a battle, they had to get the money from somewhere. They had to pay their troops. And they didn't pay their troops, the troops would mutiny and kill them. And then you find out there's trade routes going all over the place, all the way from Rome to Greece to the Middle East, even all the way to China. People will travel to make money. Trade routes everywhere, business opportunities and business activity everywhere in the ancient world. And people back then were just like they are today. They want to make money. One of the hardest things I have to talking to Chinese Christians is they got to make money and they always taking courses, MBAs and things like that, trying to get ahead. And they say, you want to study the Bible? Oh, I, got, I got an MBA course. I got a computer course, you know. Constant battle with that urge to make money. Now, of course, they've been relatively poor, and Chinese people are very ambitious. But I'm telling you, nothing wrong with making a profit. I believe in profit. I believe in the free market system that allows people to work and get ahead and create savings for a rainy day and for investments in, in, that create other jobs. I am a free market, unashamed free market capitalist, a libertarian in many ways. I'm sure pure libertarians would object to me saying that, but I'm basically a free market capitalist. I believe that that gives the chance for people to get out of poverty. I hate poverty, and I know that the only way we're ever going to beat poverty is when we let capitalism spread. But having said that, people have got to be careful when there's economic opportunity that they don't sell their souls to the idea of making a profit. I've seen it happen over and over again. There's lots of economic opportunity in America, lots of entrepreneurship. You've got to be careful. And I, and I admire the Chinese for wanting to get ahead. They've, some of them have grown up in very, very hard circumstances. I believe in these enterprise zones for the inner cities in America so that black Americans can have a chance to work their way out of poverty. I believe in all that. But remember, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and he will add all that profit unto you. Now, this verse is not mainly talking about whether profit's good or bad. It's talking about presuming on the future, and we could apply this to other situations besides making money. But you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. 
Now here's some scriptures that show that. Psalm 102:11. My days are like a lengthening shadow, and I wither away like grass. Folks, this life is fleeting. It goes in a hurry. Job 8, 9. Since we were born only yesterday and know nothing, our days on earth are but a shadow. 1 Chronicles 29:15. For we live before you as foreigners and temporary residents in your presence as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. James 1, 10 and 11. But the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. Folks, we're all going to die. And... The rich cannot take it with them when they go. I remember one time I was paying a bill for a biopsy I had to get done, and I was in my 60s, and the the doctor's nurse, assistant or clerk or whoever she was, she was taking my credit card information, and she mentioned something about our golden age. She was my age, too. She says, let me tell you something. This ain't your golden age. This is the age when everything falls apart. I started laughing about that because I said, yeah, people call it the golden age because they don't want to face the fact how hard it is to grow old. I've got a 90-year-old mother. I'm watching her. Oh, my gosh. I'm getting old myself. Hardly get out of bed in the morning. I creak. Every joint creaks. I got to waddle down the stairs. Folks, we are all passing away. Our life is but a shadow. We're like smoke. There it is, and it's gone as soon as a puff of wind comes. Now, that's reality, but now some people think, well, tomorrow I'm going to be making a ton of money, and they got the future all planned out. The future never comes out like you think it's going to come out. What's the antidote to that? The antidote is to say this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In other words, he knows the future. He'll take care of you. He'll bless your work. Do what he says. Now, he might tell you to do something in the present that you don't think is easy. Well, that's typical the way the Lord works. But if you'll do his will, if you'll be obedient and submissive to him, he will give you blessings more than you ever thought possible. The secret of this life is not planning for tomorrow and being successful. The secret to this life is doing God's will. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In other words, it might not even be God's will for me to live next year. I might be gone back to into heaven. That's okay. If the Lord wills, each day is under the control of the Lord and we live accordingly. The modern Christian way to say that is, I will live my life according to God's will, not my will. Jesus said it in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, God, but your will be done. We go to verse 16 of James 4. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What were they boasting? Well, they were boasting of how they were going to go into a certain city and make money. How we're going to be rich. Sounds like these PR pumpers for IPOs and entrepreneurship. And I always say, oh, we're going to make money. Oh, we're going to get rich. As if their life was in their own hands. They don't know. The future is not certain, folks. It's uncertain. Verse 17 of James 4. So it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. Now, this idea of you're culpable for what you know is stated by Jesus in Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do, or do it, do his master's will, that slave will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did things deserving of blows will be beaten lightly. So ignorance is no excuse, however the punishment is mitigated. Much will be required of everyone who has been given much. 
and even more will be expected of the one who has been entrusted with more. That's like that verse right here in our book of James, where James said, don't, don't let many be teachers of the law, because teachers of the law, teachers, are held to a higher standard. Well, everybody's held to a higher standard. The more you know, the more you're responsible for. Jesus taught it right here in Luke 12, 47 and 48. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to know more and more, because as you get more knowledge, you got Jesus will give you more grace in order to do that which you've learned about. But at any rate, this is a basic moral precept of James. If you know what is good and you don't do it, that's like being a hypocrite. Now, James could be referring here to Jewish Christians who had all their knowledge of the Old Testament law, unlike the Gentile Christians who did not. So he's saying, look, you Jewish believers, you know what's right to do because you have the law, but you don't do it, so you're just as guilty, as opposed to the Gentiles who didn't know what they were doing was wrong. So James says in verse 17, it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. What good is James referring to? Well, Gil says he could be referring to the immediate verse, praying to God, uh, excuse me, presuming on the future and saying, I'm going to go into the city for one year and make money, even though I haven't prayed about it and I don't know it's God's will. Presuming on the future, in other words, that could be what James is talking about, knowing what is good. The good being praying to God instead of presuming on the future, the immediate context. However, Gill also suggests it could be talking to all the things that we're supposed to do good that are mentioned in the book of James. And James is, a, 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 I hate to say this, a do-gooding book, if you will. He's, he's, talking about, he's talking about the works that flow from faith. Not the works that justify faith, that create faith, but the works in the sense of declare righteous, but the works that justify faith in the sense that they show faith, they evidence faith. Now, here's some of the things he said that, that you can know about to do what's good and doesn't do it in his book. Showing partiality. Don't show partiality is good. Tame your tongue. That's good. Don't presume on the future we just talked about. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Don't be a spiritual adulteress. Don't be justified by works as well as by faith. Visit widows and orphans in their affliction. Don't yield to the temptation of evil. So there's a lot of good stuff. But you can know all about that. If you don't do it, what good does it do? If you don't do it, as he says, this is a repeat basically of what he said in James 1 verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He repeats the idea here in verse 17. It is a sin for a person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. He knows what is good because he's a hearer of the word. He listens to it, but he doesn't do it. Be doers, not hearers only. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with James chapter 4. In our next audio, covering James chapter 5, the first half of the chapter, we will talk about warnings to the rich, the evil rich, and James will also discuss patience and suffering. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed, I hope you enjoyed this one.